Hi everyone, welcome to the AI of Mankind show, where I share anything interesting about mankind. I'm your host for this season. My name is Andrew Liu. I've worked across four continents and 12 international cities. Also, I've worked in tech startups across a range of roles from selling products, making customer happy, figuring out fundraising, making finance tick, building teams, and developing sticky products. Apart from building startups, I've also worked in Fortune 500 companies as a chief data scientist or technologist or people leader. You can call me Jack of all trades or master of learning. I hope to make this podcast show a great learning experience for us. In each season, there is a series of interesting things where I invite guests to share their views about their life and interests. Now let the show begin. Today's guest is Damien. Damien is one of Asia-Pacific's recognized digital transformation leaders. He's currently the Chief Lecturer Digital Strategy and Leadership Practice at the National University of Singapore, Institute of System Science. Prior to that, he was the founder and CEO of HR Tech, a software service company, PeopleWave. Before entrepreneurship, he was the Global Head of Digital Marketing at the Standard Chartered Bank and the Chief Marketing Officer at Philips Asia Pacific. Damien has also worked at major global brands such as Samsung, Dell, Ogilvy Mater, Coca-Cola, and McKinsey & Co. Let's welcome our guest, Damien. Hi, Damien. Oh, thank you very much. You look very interactive. You've got some uh, fruits and calculators behind you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Very good. Yeah, I love it. So the show is to enable the audience to learn more about AI, digital transformation, and the guests. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay, no problem. Cool. Tell me about how do you get to where you are from the day that you did your first startup? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, my first startup was actually back in the 1990s. So actually, my first job was in McKinsey, and then back in the 90s, and it was a lot of fun. I did what most of the other consultants were doing there. They left during the original dot-com boom. Now, at the time, I was very poor. I was living with a flatmate, so my flatmate and my girlfriend got together, and uh, what we did is we kind of actually formed a company that actually built websites back in the day. Now, that feels very commoditized now, but um, we actually you know, became Yahoo's e-commerce partner. We were building, we moved into kind of the early days of what would have been cloud software with email marketing and CRM tools, and yeah, we we're doing some really cool stuff. We became a top 20 web development company back in those days in Australia, but of course, with the dot-com boom came the dot-com crash, and the company were wound down, and I ended up losing everything. But of course, that was my first experience in startup, and that, that was almost about four years of doing that. It was it was the equivalent of at least doing an MBA or a master's degree. It was you know great kind of actually yeah, and doing this in my twenties was was amazing. L- lots learned despite the fact that it didn't work. But my most recent startup was my most recent job. So I, I after that uh, first business kind of fell over, I had to go get a real job and I built a career over twenty years as a digital person. So a digital guy that looked after e-commerce or sales and around marketing. So, you know, I hit the top of the C-suite. I became a chief marketing officer and head of digital in different companies. 
And my last corporate job was the global head of digital at Standard Chartered Bank. And it was a great job. I mean, fantastic people there and a big ambition. But, you know, in big companies like that, there's not a lot of stability. And what happened is that I ended up getting laid off. So I went through a retrenchment process and it made me very angry. Not because, uh, and it wasn't because I did a bad job and it wasn't because the team weren't performing. We actually were hitting, you know, stellar runs everywhere. But the reality is that it was very political. So the, the reasons they kind of chose to actually disband this team and, you know, choose to actually get rid of some people versus others uh, really frustrated me. I've always been more of a data-driven guy. So, you know, I took my little bit of retrenchment money and I formed my last business called PeopleWave. Wow. There, were, there were two aspects of that. One, how do I make work fair? You know, I've just been through a very unfair retrenchment and, and I hated it. And two, you know, could you use data to make better decisions as a manager and, and a people, as you know, someone looking after people? So, you know, I did that until COVID. So that was great. Raised a million dollars, brought two products to market. We had hundreds of SMEs using our products. Then later, about three years in, we realized we had a bigger ambition. We signed an 11 million USD term sheet to go big at the end of 2019, but then COVID hit. So COVID killed our core business of HR technology uh, because no one's hiring and no one's buying our software. But also the, the people we trusted to actually put that money into the business end up you know, not delivering. So that was catastrophic. So I'm actually, it's pretty fresh for me. So that kind of business just went down at the beginning of 2021. And it led me to a bit of a change and a reflection about where I am in life. Ah, and that was how eventually you um, got yourself to be the chief officer or principal lecturer at the NUS Institute of System and Science? Yeah, I'm currently at the National University of Singapore in the Institute of System Science. So I'm chief of digital strategy and leadership there. And what that means is, um, you know, applied my 20 plus years of knowledge, actually, now I'm actually giving it back. So I teach programs like the Masters of Technology and Digital Leadership. I'm doing obviously business development, looking at actually growing capability for NUS. And also it's, it's fun actually kind of big giving back into corporate groups. So we do executive education around things like cybersecurity, AI, uh, digital transformation, digital strategy, and so on. So a lot of fun. It's early days, but uh, certainly very different change of pace than the corporate jobs and the startups I've worked at before. Yeah, it sounds very fun. I mean, like your whole story is like a, an adventure, right? Where you started out <laughs> running a startup and then you end up doing C-suite, uh, doing digital transformation, and then went and going back to the startup again, and then now coming back to giving back to the to society as an educator. The CEO of the C-suite management decided, okay, this is a great way, but we noticed big company or small company, some people just pay lip service, like, oh, yeah, I'm on for uh, you know transformation, but when you ask them, like, oh, uh, when are you putting into the data, or when are you starting to use this new software, they're like, hmm, I don't know, I'm still busy at the moment. What do you have to say about that? Well, you're right. Actually, it doesn't matter what technology you put in place or what projects you're trying to deliver. The reality is that stakeholder management and change management is usually where it goes wrong. I mean, you're probably seeing this data as well that 84% of digital transformation projects fail, so only 16% succeed. And it's not because they're not great technology or using the right data. It's because um, the change management is the real issue. So and you've got to actually kind of drill down on this a little bit further. So all your new hires, all your junior executives are passionate. They want to make change and they want to get, get things done. On the, on the other extreme, you've got the experience C-level. They want to make more money. They want to do new things. That they, they want to drive change. So you've got both of those two groups that actually are working really well together. The problem is the frozen middle. Every organization, whether you have 10 people or whether you have 10,000 people, has mid-level managers that have been there. They're always used to the way things are done. And you have this idea of the frozen middle. 
everyone in your organization has the power to say no. Every single person. Now they might not explicitly say that, but it could be that they you know, they are against your project, they don't say yes, they basically just avoid you or they don't kind of get back to you on time or they're generally not necessarily sabotaging you, but certainly are unsupportive or unwilling to actually make those changes. And actually the secret to any project management, but specifically the digital transformation is how do you find the losers in that transformation and make them the winner? How do you kind of unfreeze the frozen middle? And how do you make sure you actually build change management into the core process from day one? Yeah, I think that's an that's a absolute brilliant answer to uh, people noticing that there's a lot of people who pay lip service or who sort of say that they embrace change, but the behavior tells it all. You know, now having to say that, let's say, you know, companies manage to get everything uh, in technology, everybody embracing the technology in terms of generating workflow and workflow generating data. And now also today, you know, AI is the new buzzword. Everybody talks about AI. Every company, whether big or small, AI seems to be part of their agenda. So where do you see AI or artificial intelligence in the process of digital transformation? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think AI is still fairly early in the whole process of adoption. And uh, what we're seeing is we're, we're trying to figure out where the use cases are. I think there's a couple of things you can keep in mind with this. AI is generally used for most things. Uh, you know, you can't apply AI to, you know, almost most things in your organization yet because it requires a large data set. AI is also machine learning, but also comes off the idea that you've got large data sets and large historical data to play around with. So yes, you might have a large organization of, say, thousands of employees, but if you've only got one month's record, I mean, the AI can't do much for that. <laughs> it can do very simple things about saying, hey, AI, can you uh, tell me, you know, Damien's email address, you know, that's pretty easy to do. It's almost like a chatbot. But actually, true uh, use of AI actually is going to be from months or years worth of data, understanding where the trends are. Is there seasonality? Are things going up and down? What's the relationship between A and B? Uh, I see AI is particularly relevant for the world of HR. I think that's really, really powerful. But um, there's a lot of promises, but not a lot of delivery yet. So, you know, can we use AI for recruitment? Can we use AI for performance management? Uh, the answer is theoretically yes, but the answer in practice is no. Uh, so I think it's very early days at the moment, huge potential to kind of revolutionize everything, but um, that's going to come at a cost. And AI generally is about how do you cut costs out of an organization. You should be able to make faster decisions, better decisions with less people. But at the moment, none of those kind of promises have run true yet. But I am a big believer in AI, and I think it is going to change the world. Let's just see what it looks like in a couple of years' time. Yes, you mentioned it like AI re needs data, you know, be it like structured, unstructured, big or small. And every time when people need more data, it comes from the workflow. And mm. when organizations just move or digital transform into a new cloud or digital apps, you know, where it enables them to work more nimble to collect more data. And then how do they move from, let's say I have simple apps, now I want to move into a few more apps to enable more data to enable better analytics or AI. How does that transition, like, would they feel fatigued, like, oh my God, we just finished one phase, now I'm going to another phase. You know, I see this as a continuous phase of digital transformation. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, I'll, I'll go back a couple of years ago, I used to work at a, one of the large companies I worked at, and uh, they introduced Salesforce for the sales teams. Now, I think on paper, you could always benefit from Salesforce. If you have hundreds or thousands of salespeople and you're engaging customers, 
you can't have that data in somebody's head or in an Excel spreadsheet. You just can't. Yeah. I mean, the number of people that a salesperson is going to meet, uh, where they are in the opportunity pipeline, it just makes a lot of sense to actually put a CRM system in place to understand who you've met, where they are, what their contact details are, uh, how many meetings have you had. You know, and you know, on average, I think you've got a B2B context, you need to have nine meetings with a prospect before they actually get close to making a decision. You need to follow up over the course of, you know, sometimes six to nine months to actually get a sale. But uh, in the, some of the large companies I've worked at, when we introduced things like Salesforce, uh, beyond the initial uh, burst of enthusiasm, getting there, putting in your contact details, getting username and password, uh, what we realized actually six months in is actually 80% of salespeople just weren't logging in. We had to kind of uh, get with them, actually with them, actually on a weekly sales meeting, actually uh, name and shame people who are simply not logging into the system. And uh, it became problematic because uh, these other issues came up. Initially, we thought it was okay, well, people just are fatigued or don't want to do it. And yeah. yes, there was an element of that. But then the second thing came up, which is cultural, which is salespeople didn't want to share. They had this perception that if the data was in there, people would steal their clients. That if they put their data in there, they could be fired much more easily because they've given over all their intellectual property to the company. And all this stuff actually just came out because in unusual ways. You wouldn't have thought about it on face value thinking, you know, why wouldn't we put a Salesforce CRM in place? But all this other issue came up and actually it stresses people enormously. Oh, is my company going to fire me? I mean, are they going to take all my IP? Are they going to steal my clients? Can actually they see that I'm not maybe as good a performer as I thought I was? All this stuff is actually the unwanted emotional byproduct of putting a system in like this. So not only is it about the, you know, the digital fatigue of actually a new system, a new process and more training, but the emotional fatigue of actually my life becoming more transparent, my life becoming put in, you know, digitized into ones and zeros and people can make decisions just based on what they can see out of, you know, a, a simple metric, uh, such as the number of clients I'm visiting. So it's a lot of very interesting about the cultural aspect as well as the fatigue as well. Yeah, I mean, like when you talk about that, I just remember the days when I, I joined uh, Hey Group, which is acquired by Conferry as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was doing was we provide this thing called the pay net, some pay data. And before we serve our clients, we need to go, back then there was no CRM. Um, and then I had to go to the finance and then the finance will give me a file and they will flip, 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 flip. Oh, did this, did this customer pay for the subscription for this year? And only then I will go back and then call back the customer. Oh, yes, I just checked the records. You did pay for it. Okay, here's the password. Here's the data. And that was when I was like, hey, like, why do I need to spend like 30% of my daily time figuring out the paper to come back to the customer uh, when my key performance indicator uh, like any lawyers, the more um, billables I have, uh, the more revenue the companies make, and therefore I get more bonus. So I thought along that line, and then I decided to build a, a business case to it. And uh, to my surprise, that uh, it took me a while to to build champions, to build positive story. And so talking about positive story and narrative, like is that one of the only tools that you know people can actually rally people to change the culture? Or you think that culture is sort of like is that's it? You know, is a structural. Uh, situation and it's hard to change, you know. Uh, culture changes all the time. I mean, so I think actually looking at your story, uh, you pretty quickly realize that what's in it for me. So you realize, okay, I don't really want to dig through, you know, all this paperwork and all these files. Actually, if I can save all this admin work, which obviously you have to do on a recurring basis, then, you know, suddenly it dawned on you, this is useful. 
But most people, where change management generally goes wrong and where these projects always fail is that uh, people just simply fail to look at what's in it for me. They do. Many years ago, I used to work at Coca-Cola in Australia. So, and one of my tasks there was to introduce e-commerce into the organization. So it was B2B e-commerce. So it used to be that a truck driver came out and went to a hotel, a cafe, and said, how many cases of Coke do you want? Then they updated into a contact center, and there was hundreds of people in the contact center that actually called up every week or fortnight to these same hotels and cafes and said, how many cases of Coke do you want? But the problem is, if you're a cafe owner, for example, or you know a small business, uh, you're getting a call at maybe 1.30 in the afternoon during peak periods. Uh, you know the, the waitress answers, and she doesn't have the data. Or some other employee's got to go down into the cellar to have a look at how many cases they want. It's really problematic. So I was brought in to actually look at e-commerce and actually introduce that self-service system. And I promise you the story's going somewhere. So uh, what happened is that I built this platform called Coke Connect, yeah. but actually I had no money to build it. I was actually asked to actually get, uh, reduce the call center by 50%, uh, get rid of hundreds of employees to actually fund this. So you can imagine that would have been in a terrible situation to be in. So um, what I did is actually kind of move myself you know, away from the wonderful office and the harbor I had, uh, moved over to the kind of contact center, which is in the middle of nowhere. And I, I sat down with them for a couple of months without a solution in mind, but just understanding what the contact center were all about. Actually, could there be a fit here? So I realized three things. Number one, nobody wants to work in a call center. <laughs> they don't. They hate it. Uh, but in Coke, actually, the kind of the fantastic jobs are sales jobs because they got the red card, they got paid well, but the secret is success of Coke is actually their fantastic distribution. So salespeople are superstars. Number two, people love digital. I mean, they didn't love this project because you know it was actually threatening their jobs, but you know, they wanted to be e-commerce experts, they wanted to be digital, and they wanted to be upskilled, particularly if that's free. And the third aspect is that because maybe the call center is not where people see them the rest of their life, there was a pretty high turnover. So it's about 25%. So I pulled all these things together. And actually, we figured out the what's in it for them. So number one, sat down with the, the sales director and said, okay, how many salespeople do you need to hire every year? So gave us a number. So we said, okay, fantastic. Would you consider taking them from the contact center rather than trying to steal them from Pepsi or somebody else? It's like, you know, after a while, begrudgingly said yes. So, okay, fantastic. So that we could then do is actually have a, a promotion program, actually going from a contact center employee after, you know, the best, the best could do that, uh, and you could graduate to become a, a sales leader. Number two, we actually took the best and most interested people and said, okay, we want to run you through a, a digital program. We're going to make you a digital and e-commerce specialist. Who wants to do that? Yeah, lots of hands went up. So actually, we got a whole bunch of people and actually made them e-commerce and digital specialists, which you know looks fantastic on your CV. <laughs> and the third thing is sitting down with each of the kind of state GMs and said to them, how often do you lose people? Could we put a plan in place to not replace those roles as they progressively resign out of the organization? But with those three things, we could turn around at the end of that process and say, no one will lose their job. But not only that, but we can actually guarantee you promotions to be a salesperson or upskilling, reskilling to be a digital leader. And, uh, and this project will benefit everybody. So we turned, you know, hundreds of people who, who hated the project with a passion into people who are actually wild advocates for the project. So it was about a couple of things, figuring out who the losers were and trying to make them the winners, you know, being empathetic about it, not in simply refusing to actually kind of cut costs because you have to. There's always a better option. You don't have to be a brutal person to just simply slash and burn your organization. There is always a better way. 
And actually, fu fundamentally understanding that is actually elements of change management, elements of digital transformation. They're just a, a fantastic case study of actually being human and engaging people from the start gives you wildly um, different outcomes than you might expect. And because those people were so passionate about the project and the benefits to them, because they actually you know, flipped it on its head 180, uh, what then happened is that they smashed up the KPIs within six months. I think 13,750 wow. businesses signed up to the platform. The contact center workers are calling up every day trying to get more and more customers on there because the more people that actually, more businesses that got on there, the more chances they had to become a sales leader, an e-business person, or e-commerce person, etc. So, you know, it was basically turned from a vicious cycle into a virtuous one. And just, it was a fantastic case study of how to do digital transformation well. Wow, I mean, that's an amazing story. And along the way that you mentioned, it's more about turning the losers to winners, getting mm. them excited, solving the what's in it for me, yes. and then finding alternative ways. And so along this line, I was thinking along the line that, yeah, this could be one of the best narrative to enable, you know, companies to adopt AI. Hi guys, thanks for listening to this podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, remember to subscribe to this show. If you have subscribed to this show and love this episode, please share it with your friends, family and acquaintances. See you later and see you soon. <laughs>